Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Hilda. I'm an alcoholic. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I um, really want to thank Pixie and the committee for um, asking me, and Mark um, for picking me up and taking me around. I got to see Lenin and the troll. <laughs> it's an interesting combination, a couple of blocks apart. I didn't know. Um, it's a lovely area, and thank you, Patty. I didn't see you here, but um, Patty, opening your home, it was really lovely. Um, <clears throat> So I don't think it gets much better than this. Um, thank you. Um, so Julie and Mark are here. Julie's my sobriety sister. And, um, you know, I was thinking when I was chatting to her, I was in a women's meeting not long ago, and uh, one of my other sobriety sisters was leading. And she was sharing about how when she was drinking, she was Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? She was Eeyore, and everything was terrible, and tomorrow was going to be worse, and, you know, doomsday. And, and then all these women jumped in to share that they identified. They were also Eeyore. And I was sitting in the meeting thinking, I was never Eeyore. I am Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> right? Because for me, it's all about the honey. It's about getting the honey. It's about eating the honey. It's about getting over the honey. But it's about the honey. And it's always going to be better tomorrow because I'm going to do it different tomorrow, right? I'm not going to change anything, but it's going to be different. And, um, you know, I was, and, and I started thinking in the meeting, well, if I'm Winnie the Pooh and she's Eeyore, that means our alcoholic friends who did meth must be Tigger, <laughs> right? Um, and then I realized that Piglet was the untreated Al-Anon. <laughs> Which means Christopher Robin is the black belt Al-Anon, right? So, so I'm Winnie the Pooh. Um, <laughs> that's what it reminded me of, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's like that everywhere, right? Every AA meeting you go to, you will find that. Um, and it, and it's amazing to me that this works for everybody. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And, um, uh, yeah, that's about all I can do, really. Um, you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not an expert. Um, I don't don't get paid to do this. I'm just a drunk. Um, and uh, if you don't remember anything else I say and you're new, um, I hope you know that I truly believe Alcoholics Anonymous can work for anybody. Um, when I drink, I am a lying, bedwetting whore. And... <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous is the only thing that has ever worked for me, you know. So um, I was born in London, <clears throat> in case you were wondering. Uh, I grew up in a pub. Um, my grandparents owned the pub, and I'm an only child, an only grandchild, and uh, I loved it. I loved everything about alcohol long before I ever drank it. I liked the look of the bottles and the fancy labels and the shapes, and I just thought it was fantastic. And, you know, as an only child, we entertain ourselves well. That's what we do. Um, we don't have people to play with. So I, uh, my playground was the cellar, and my playthings were the bottles. 
you know, and I would line whiskey bottles up on one side and vodka bottles on the other, and I'd have the whiskey bottles chatting to the vodka bottles, and they'd be chatting to me, and I'd be chatting to them, you know, and vodka was the good guys, and whiskey was the bad guys, and uh, the only sad part about that is it was still true in my 20s, right? I mean... <laughs> But I loved it, you know, I loved it long before I drank it. And my granddad's pub was in the shape of um, kind of a U, and there were two bars in the front right on the road with a little hallway between them. And then there was a long bar out the back with a kitchen opposite it with a, an alleyway out to the car park. And my bedroom was above the kitchen, and it looked straight down into the long bar. Now, the two front bars, one was called the front bar, <laughs> The other was called the cocktail bar, and both of them had different types of drinkers. The front bar was where sort of older people went, old people actually went, and nursed a brandy all day, right? And the cocktail bar, you all saw that happen, right? <laughs> the cocktail bar was where people went in after work and had a couple of drinks and went home. So even when I was little, before I ever drank, neither of those were attractive to me, right? My bedroom window looked down into the long bar, and the long bar is where life happened, right? Long bar is where fights broke out, and the police got called, and they had darts tournaments and pool tournaments, and the disco happened there, and I loved it. I loved watching. It was better than telly for me, right? And then um, after hours, they would have, in London at the time, they had something called lock-in, so after licensing hours, they would lock all the doors, and the regulars got to stay. And they would drink with my granddad until he went to bed. And I would watch them from my bedroom window, and I thought it was magic, right? Because all I could see was the light, the light sort of glowing the neon through the optics of the bottles hanging on the wall, you know? And the, and the regulars would turn down the jukebox, and they'd all sit around and play cribbage. And I thought it just looked perfect. So I snuck down one night, and um, I poked my head into the long bar, and my granddad flagged me in, and he set me up in a bar stool, and I got a baby sham. And at the time, baby sham, it came in a little bottle. It's like a sparkling wine, really, or something. Um, but it had a cartoon deer on the label, and the deer was, like, leaping, you know. And, uh, and he put it in a little glass, and it's a little bottle, and I'm a little person, and I had arrived. You know, I can't to this day, I can't tell you how old I was. I just know that my pajamas still had feet in them, right? And I don't know if I got tipsy or drunk or if I liked the taste or didn't like the taste because none of that mattered. I was part of, and I loved it. And to this day, I can see that night as it happened. You know, and uh, I think that that's really part of my alcoholism, you know, because I think I tried to get that night back the rest of my drinking, and it never happened again, you know. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about me around page 33, and I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says it doesn't matter how much you drink or how often you drink, it's what happens when you drink. And that many who are merely potential alcoholics often become the real thing in a relatively short amount of time, particularly true of women. And I am one of those women. You know, by 16, I had an ulcer. At 17, I got done for drunk driving for the first time. At 18, I had a heart attack, and six months later, I was in my first mental hospital. And that's when drink was working, right? 
it, um, it all went downhill after that. <laughs> Over the next three years, I was in and out of five mental hospitals. And the longest I was ever out of a mental hospital was for two weeks. And uh, in those two weeks, I'd moved into my own flat. I had the curtains drawn, the answering machine on. I think 56 channels of shite on the telly and a fridge full of um, Osti Spumanti vodka and Michelob light. Because I was always watching calories, right? <laughs> so, and you know, I did not speak to or see another human being for those two weeks, and I was happy. I was happy. I have a clear memory of standing in the shower, drinking a cold Mick light, not knowing if it was day or night, and not caring. And just thinking it doesn't get any better than this, right? But what happened was I got a knock on the door one day, and it was my mom, my shrink, two policemen, two nurses, and a very legal-looking piece of paper. And they shot me in the arse with something and put me in a jacket with really long arms. <laughs> and uh, I came to at the Institute for the Living in Hartford, Connecticut. Now, <clears throat> I felt like I um, was on candid camera. I'd been punked or something, right? Because it seemed very surreal to me. I found out that I had been committed for a minimum of a year for being a danger to myself and others. Now... I hadn't seen anybody for two weeks. I couldn't figure out who the others were. <laughs> right? And it really bothered me, you know, because anybody who's been in a place like that knows the people in those places are crazy. <laughs> now, I've always known I wasn't quite right. Not quite, not quite level, you know, not really a full ticket. Quite honestly, I don't think I'll ever be a full ticket. I don't think there's a program in the world that will make me a full ticket. What I do know is that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the tools that allow me to act as if I'm a full ticket. <laughs> and I'm running with that today, but... <clears throat> At the time, I knew there was something wrong, and I knew they didn't know what it was. But I had this roommate, and it was really obvious what was wrong with her, right? I mean, she had rage attacks. One minute she'd be fine, and then she'd snap, and she'd start punching out windows and going for nurses, and it'd be chaos. And I'd be sitting on the bed reading, nothing going on here. Mm-mm, I am good. <laughs> and they did this thing called wet packing. And uh, all these nurses would come in, they would tackle her to the floor, wrap her in cold, wet sheets, and toddle her away. Now, she had something I didn't have, and that was friends locally. And her friends used to smuggle money in all the time, so our room always had money hidden in it. So when she'd get toddled away, I'd start thinking, right? Because I'm a thinker. I start thinking, what a waste it is to leave all that money sitting around. Right? Somebody should do something with it. So I would go AWOL on her dime. And um, the first time I went AWOL, I ended up in downtown Hartford, I had $50 on me, and I had no clue what I was going to do. And this little fellow wandered up to me, and he said, Psst, do you want to buy a ticket to Prince? Now, I didn't know who Prince was. I am truly an ACDC Black Sabbath kind of girl. But, but I'm thinking a dark auditorium. This might work, right? So... I get these tickets, and I'm sitting in the nosebleed seats. I smuggled in two bottles of vodka, and while he did his little Ralsbury beret thing, I got absolutely legless. And uh, after, um, after the concert, I was wandering around Hartford, and I ended up in this park, 
And there was a group of fellows, winos really, but they were passing a bottle. And I sat down with them. And they kept looking at me like stupid or crazy. But they let me drink with them. They didn't say a word. (laughs) And as dawn came, the white van with the blue letters pulled up, (laughs) Institute for the Living. And I stood up and said, I got to go. My ride's here. It's a true story. <laughs> and these fellows just looked at each other like, yep, crazy. <laughs> so I get back to the hospital, and I'd have to build up my little trust points. Anybody who's been institutionalized knows what those are about. And, uh, you know, um, as time was going on, I was getting a little tired. And the last time I went AWOL, I ended up in this little pizza joint around the corner from the hospital. And uh, I went in, and I thought, okay, Holder, this time we are going to do this properly. We're going to do this like a lady. So I walked in. I ordered two slices of pizza, two pitchers of beer. (laughs) I took the pitchers. I sat down in the booth, and I started pouring it into the glass because we're going to do this like a lady. But just as I got started, some of the nurses from my unit came in on their break. So now... I'm down in the booth with the pitcher up to my mouth, trying to get as much down me before they see me. You know, just madness, really. As my year came up, I had to go before a board of psychiatrists. And my psychiatrist stood up and said, Hilda will never live in normal society. She is completely incapable. And his recommendation was that I did a minimum of another year. And it took me um, two and a half months to convince that board to let me out. So I did 14 and a half months. And uh, I have to tell you, in hindsight, I think he may have had a point. (laughs) So I moved from Hartford to Hamden, which was just down the road, and I got a little job, and I met a fella. And this fella turned out to be a Coke dealer. Now, (laughs) I didn't know that Coke would let you drink longer, right? Apparently those of you nodding did. I did not. But I tell you what happened. In a relatively short amount of time, I'm working at this job at $700 a week. I have a coke habit of $1,500 a week. And when you do the math, it wasn't coming out terribly well. (laughs) And I was sitting on my counter in my kitchen one day, and I looked out at my flat. I was drinking um, McLeod at the time. I looked out at my flat, and I thought, Hilda, you've sold your curtains for coke. If you're hanging out with people who will buy your curtains, we have a problem here. (laughs) Do you know I never did coke again? In fact, I'd be in parties and people around me would be doing coke and my head would go, "Mm -mm mm-mm-mm, remember the curtains. (laughs) Now, I think that's what makes me a real alcoholic because far worse things happen to me drinking than ever happened to me with Coke. And never once did my head ever say, don't drink. What it might say is, don't drink whiskey because it makes you mean. Stay away from the red wine because it makes you cry. You know, or my version of chapter three, switching from scotch to brandy or scott to randy. But it never, (laughs) it never actually said, don't drink, right? So I'm in Hamden, I get done for drunk driving, drunk and disorderly, indecent exposure, and I think, I never should have left England. It was so much better there. What was I thinking? 
and I moved back to England, and I wouldn't be in England very long, and I get done for drunk driving, drunk and disorderly, indecent exposure, and I think, you know, America was so much better. <laughs> what was I thinking? And I moved back to America, and really, back and forth, that's really my drinking in a nutshell. It was always going to be better somewhere else, right? And, of course, everywhere I went, there I was. <laughs> I have a friend who describes that as changing cabins on the Titanic. You know, <laughs> the view changes, but your destination is the same. And uh, <laughs> I have a long list of arrests for um, indecent exposure. And uh, I know, I don't look the type today. <laughs> well, maybe a little. <laughs> But something happens when you add alcohol to my type of alcoholic. And I know I'm not alone in Alcoholics Anonymous because I have heard plenty of women share. But as soon as you add alcohol to my type of alcoholic, for whatever reason, I just know that you have to see my tits. <laughs> now, I know, I know that that's part of my alcoholism because I do not feel the need to show them to you now. You're really not a well lot at all, are you? <laughs> so, so I'm back and forth and back and forth. And I'm back in England this time, and I'm tending bar with my mate Andy. And Andy and I have been great friends for a long time. And um, Andy's birthday was on New Year's Eve. So we started drinking on Christmas Eve, as you do, right? <laughs> now, I've always been a blackout drinker. I used to call it losing time. I was always losing time. I might lose a couple hours, I might lose a couple of days, I might lose the weekend, whatever, but I was always losing time. Now, I had assumed that when I had lost time, I had passed out quietly somewhere. I found out on the 3rd of January, that is not true. <laughs> I was woken by the ringing phone, and when I answered it, it was Andy, um, and he was looking to pick out rings. And I had no clue what he was talking about. And he said, no, no, Hilda, not this time. Now, he brought over a video, and I'm on this video, and I look great. I look great. I am not slurring my words. I'm not walking funny. I've got drink in hand. It's all the pubs we were in. My father was there. All our friends were there. I'm watching the video, and Andy went down on one knee, and I thought, dear God, say no. <laughs> I wasn't there. And what I realized in that moment was that you didn't know that I didn't know that I wasn't there, you know. So I did what I did best, really. I went to the pub, <laughs> and I, I panicked, really. I went to the pub, and I found the guy in the pub that knows everything about everything, right? This guy is in every bar all over the world. Uh, there's a few of you here tonight, I know, right? <laughs> This is the guy that you ask the time and he tells you how the pendulum clock works, right? I mean, he truly is the most interesting man in the world, right? So I'm chatting away to this fella and I tell him, you know, I'm, I'm engaged and I don't know what to do and I don't want to get married. And he says to me, did you know if you volunteer on a kibbutz in Israel, they give you three meals a day, they do your laundry and you get 50 quid a month. And I thought, result? Three days later, I'm in Golders Green. I've got a visa. I'm going to Israel. Now, I'm a good Irish Catholic girl. <laughs> this all made sense to me. <laughs> I went for three months. I stayed nine. And um, I came out of a blackout in a Tel Aviv jail charged with drunk driving. <laughs> 
I can tell you that um, I didn't remember renting the car, and I can tell you that really horrible things happen to young, vulnerable women who drink like I do in places like that. And uh, I got out on bail, and I jumped bail, and I went to Egypt, and I ended up with the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, really horrible things happen to young, vulnerable women who drink like I do in places like that. I ended up getting dumped in Cairo, just near the American embassy. I had a tattered T-shirt on, a beat-up pair of shorts, and not another thing to my name. And a big American Marine took pity on me. You know, it was Ramadan, and everything was shut, including the embassy, and him and his mates looked after me until it opened. And, you know, I truly believe that a non-alcoholic woman who had been through what I had been through would probably never drink again. But I'm a goalpost drinker. I'm one of those drinkers that says, if it gets bad, I move the goalpost back just a little bit. I say, if it gets worse, I move that goalpost back just a little bit more. You know, I got an emergency passport, and I wasn't 20 minutes in the air, and I thought, hell, they could have killed me. I was drunk when I landed. And I had no clue that it had anything to do with alcoholism. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. And the whole 80s for me are like kind of a long blackout with little bits of reality tossed in, you know, and coming to the ends of the 80s. It's a bit like <laughs> like the Talking Head song, Once in a Lifetime, where he goes, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. How did I get here? You know, it's like coming to the end of the 80s, I found out I was in a relationship that apparently I had been in for quite a while. And my partner was commenting on my drinking, which I just thought was rude, you know. So um, I moved. <laughs> I moved to Nebraska with me mom. You know, I wasn't with me mom very long, and she started commenting on my drinking. And uh, I really didn't know what to do. And I thought about my uncle. Now, my uncle had tried to 12-step me in a pub in St. Albans in England when I was 18. You know, he was, I'm going to say, nine months sober at the time, and he was on fire with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember he was buying the beer, so I let him talk, as you do, right? But I remember him saying, you know, Hilda, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you need never drink again. I was 18. I thought, why the hell wouldn't I want to drink? But he could see where I was going, and fast forward, it's all gone horribly wrong, and... uh I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I thought about him because he was still sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, my uncle was what I thought a real alcoholic was, right? My uncle went to prison. I only ever went to jail, right? I mean, my uncle went to detox centers. I only ever went to mental hospitals. So in my mind, he was what a real alcoholic was, and yet he was still sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I thought I'd give it a go. So I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on New Year's Eve, 1989, in Papillion, Nebraska. <laughs> Just God's country. And, you know, I went on New Year's Eve. I picked New Year's Eve because I truly believed no real alcoholic would quit drinking on New Year's Eve. Right? I know today only alcoholics mark the calendar. Non-alcoholics never do that. They don't think about stopping their drinking. They don't worry about their drinking. They certainly do not put red X's on calendars when they stop drinking. I didn't know that then. So New Year's Eve, I toddled along to this Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Papillion, Nebraska. It was a little meeting. They were talking about he's the father and we're the children, and I thought I was screwed. Because I know that can't be the answer. Right? I mean, I've always been a seeker. I mean, Israel, please. 
right? So I can no longer hear what's going on in the meeting. So I started taking everybody's inventory by their shoes because I can't look at you either. And the guy sitting next to me had on the biggest pair of cowboy boots I'd ever seen. And I remember thinking, I wonder if his IQ is any bigger than his boot size, you know, tearing these people to shreds. And uh, after the meeting, I made a beeline for my car, and this big, dumb cowboy followed me out. And uh, he caught me at my car, and he said, uh, have you got a big book? I said, of course I have a big book. Doesn't everybody have a big book? Now, I wouldn't have known a big book if you'd beat me with it, but I couldn't tell him that. But without missing a beat, he went to his truck, and he gave me his big book. And it really affected me, because nobody had ever seen through me like that. And I was completely speechless. And as I went to get in my car, this little old woman ran up and said, did you know if you go to a lot of meetings and you don't drink in between, you can't get drunk? <laughs> I thought, these people are freaks. But I tell you what happened. As I drove away, that woman's voice resonated in my head. And I thought, hang on a minute, she may have a point here. If I went to a lot of these meetings and I didn't drink in between, I might stay out of trouble. That's what was attractive to me. And that's exactly what I did. So for about three years, I went to a lot of meetings, didn't drink in between, and I was a rocket to stardom in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have any amount of time in this room, you know exactly who I'm talking about. I look good, I sound good, but I have no clue what's going on, right? I'm only taking commitments where you can see me. I'm certainly not going to hide in the back and make coffee, right? Um, I'm suiting up and showing up. I'm doing whatever you ask me to do. But I really believed that the steps were for those of you who were really unwell. And there seemed to be a lot of you. You know, and really you should be glad I'm here because you need me, you know. Arrogance and ignorance. You know, and the scary part of that is during that time, my life got great. My jobs got better. I'm making more money. Life is great. But I am getting sicker in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I got this job, the job I had been working really hard for. It should frighten you that they gave me a security clearance. Um, <clears throat> but I got this job, and I'm in Florida, and I'm on my way to my new job in Germany. And my partner, who had left me because I was drinking, came back. So we're walking on the beach in Florida, and she turned to me and said, you know what, Hilda, not only do I not like you, I don't love you drunk or sober. And I thought, are you kidding? Three and a half years I hadn't had a drink for her, which was my other problem. And I had no clue. You know, I, um, I had gotten a sponsor because people were giving me a hard time about not having one, right? You know what they're like. <laughs> So I found a really old, frail woman that I thought wouldn't give me a hard time. <laughs> yeah, I was wrong. So, um, so I'm in Florida. Um, my, my now ex wants a lift to the airport. So I take her to the airport. As her plane takes off, I walk in the bar. I started with Double Jack because that's how I drink. I started drinking on the Thursday, arrived in Germany on the Friday, Started my new job on the, um, no, 
I started drinking on the Saturday, arrived in Germany on the Sunday, started my new job on the Monday, got done for drunk driving on the Friday, and woke up in a wet bed next to my new boss on Saturday morning. That's my drinking. Glamour drinking. <laughs> I drank like that for nine months. And, you know, I've heard people stand at podiums and say, if you want to pick up where you left off, pick up a drink tomorrow. Absolutely not my experience. When I started drinking after not drinking, my drinking was ten times worse and more. My blackouts were longer. The people I woke up next to were uglier. <laughs> the beds were wetter. I mean, it just was not pretty. <laughs> you know, I, um, I came out of a blackout once, um, and here's the downside to living in Europe, right? Um, I come out of a blackout in a hotel room, and the room was wrecked, which is not really a big deal for me. Um, but I had no clue where I was. Now, in America, you can go find the local paper and know that you're in Lake Sammamish or wherever the hell you are, right? I'm in Seattle, whatever. In Europe, you can find the local paper, but it's in a foreign language. And if you can't recognize the language, you still do not know where you are. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> and I went to the balcony of this hotel room, and uh, I saw the Eiffel Tower. And I thought, oh, thank God, I'm in Paris. It's the one and only time I was grateful during that drinking period, you know. And then I went to check out and found out that there had been a lot of other people in that room. And, uh, and apparently I had driven there. And now I had to find my car. And that's my kind of drinking. <laughs> Dangerous drinking. I am a train wreck when I drink. You know, there are some people who can't drink and some people who shouldn't drink. And I am both, right? So on um, the 20th of July, 1993, was my morning after what I hope is my last night before. Um, I woke up in my own bed, which had become a bonus. Um, <laughs> the bed was wet, and I was still dressed from work, and all of this is very normal for me now. But when I went into the bathroom, uh, I was washing my face. There was blood everywhere. I had a gash down my face. My hose were all ripped, and I had no clue what had happened the night before. And I had a moment. I heard people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about the hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And I used to think, God, you're so dramatic. That morning, I knew who they were. And my heart broke, not because I can't drink. I drink with the best of them. But that morning, I realized I had become unpredictable to me. I did not care when I was unpredictable to you. But that morning, I realized I'd become unpredictable to me. And I really didn't know what to do. And the only place I know where to go when things like that happen is Alcoholics Anonymous. So I phoned English-speaking AA. And I talked to a fellow called Steve Baker, who lets me break his anonymity. And I told him my sad old story. Poor old me, been to AA, screwed it up. Wine, wine, wine. And he, he said something to me I truly believe saved my life. He said, you know, Hilda, the most natural thing in the world for an alcoholic to do is drink. And that's why in Alcoholics Anonymous we don't shoot our wounded. And I believed him. It's the only reason why I went to a meeting that night was because I thought he understood. So I'm driving over to this meeting in Hunsbrook, Holland, and my head kicks in. Right? My head goes, hang on a minute, Hilda. We don't want anybody to think we don't know what's going on in here. Right? I don't want anybody to think I'm new. Right? I mean, I memorized chapter 5. Not just where it said God could and would. Memorized chapter 5. Right? It's all about sounding good. And uh, 
so I have a plan now. My plan is, I'm thinking about the meetings in Florida and California, big meetings. You know, um, big speaker meeting was my home group in Florida, and I'd go five minutes late, leave five minutes early, and call it a home group, you know. <laughs> so I'm thinking what I'll do is I'll sit in the back and get a little bit of time and then tell you what happened, right? Because then I don't have to be new. But I walked into this meeting in Hunsbrook, Holland. There was seven people in the room for an hour and a half. <laughs> and nobody was letting me pass, right? I mean, they're all, you know, shiny and new. They look great. And I'm like bloated, a great gash down my face, sweaty, and a vision for you, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's not hard to see who the newcomer is that night, you know? Um, so they wouldn't let me pass, so I ended up telling them my sad old story. And, you know, um, after the meeting, they were looking for somebody to make the tea and coffee. And I was thinking, God, I hope they find somebody. <laughs> right? That's an important commitment. <laughs> and this voice from across the room went, Hilda will do it. And I was like, Hilda who? <laughs> this meeting was Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturday night. This is Tuesday night. I said, look, I didn't know if I'm going to be sober on Thursday. That seemed like a long time to me. And she, this woman goes, if you want to stay sober, you'll make the tea and coffee. And I thought, who is this psycho bitch? And why is she tormenting me? But my mouth went, oh, okay. <laughs> I had no fight left. You know, if you're new, I really hope you're tired. Uh, I would have done anything that woman suggested, and I tried, because I just didn't know what else to do, you know. And I didn't know if it was the Thursday or the Saturday, but one of these nights she pulled me aside and said, uh, you really need to try and do 90 meetings in 90 days. I looked at her and I said, do you see where we are? Honsbrook, Holland. It is nowhere. Hang a left. She goes, oh, I know where we are. But there's a meeting Wednesday night in Kaiserslautern and Friday night in Dusseldorf. And I was like, <laughs> I said, I am not driving all over God's acre for a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not happening. She goes, huh, how far did you drive for a drink? Which is so unfair. <laughs> right? Because I am that drunk at two in the morning driving around for anything open. Right? So I had this thing when I was drinking that if I got lost, I used to find the nearest B&B, &B, grab a couple of bottles, and call it a day. I did it on the way to job interviews if I got lost. I did it on the way to wedding receptions. I did it on the way to weddings. I did it on the way to my wedding once. Um, but if I got lost, all bets were off, right? So I didn't want to get lost. So Thursday night, I was tormenting my home group. I said, I'm going to Dusseldorf tomorrow night. Does anybody want to ride with me? The guy I hated the most, <laughs> hated, went, I'll go with you, Hilda. I was like, anybody but you. <laughs> but sure enough, Mike showed up on Friday night. We drove an hour and a half to Dusseldorf for an hour and a half's meeting, for an hour's coffee afterwards, and an hour and a half's drive home, and I wanted to kill him the entire time. I have left skid marks on the Autobahn where I pulled over to tell him to get out. <laughs> And he had about eight years of sobriety at the time, and he would just laugh. We're going to be late if you don't get going. <laughs> like, 
I'll tell you what I learned in that home group that is absolute gold is principles before personalities, right? Because I hated my home group. And they weren't terribly fond of me either. You know, I found out later they were pulling straws to see who was going to Dusseldorf with Hilda, you know. <laughs> I made the coffee for the first six months, and it took them probably five months to tell me my coffee sucked because I was really not approachable, you know. Um, but I'm grateful for the woman who became my sponsor. So this big American Indian, she was the only other woman in the group, <laughs> um, and she's the one who was always tormenting me. So I was reading something in the book, and to this day I can't tell you what it was, but um, it prompted me to call her. Right? It's like 2 in the morning. She answers the phone as if she was sitting on it. And uh, I said, I said, Sandy, I don't know, I'm reading this book, bit in the book, and um, I think I need a sponsor. Would you sponsor me? She said, I have been, but thanks for making it official. <laughs> got a sponsor, you know. <laughs> she, she was brutal. She, um, we used to read the big book line by line, word by word, and it's the way I do it with the women I sponsor today. And uh, I was in her kitchen, and we were reading the book, and she was in the kitchen, I was at the table, and as we were reading it, I said, I know what it says, Sunday, but do you know what it means? And before I could enlighten her, her big book came across the kitchen and just missed my head. <laughs> and I said, Sandy, what are you doing? She goes, Hilda, when you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, just read the black bits. There is nothing in between the lines. What they say is what they mean. Now, I'm a mumbler, so I'm like, I don't know, I think there's more to it than that, you know. <laughs> it's a little bit deeper, you know. She had the patience of a saint. I don't know how she didn't kill me. But um, I was in her, her home one night, and um, I had this thing about living alone, right? Because I don't know if anybody else has this problem, but my head would go, who would know? I live alone. Who would know? And it frightened me. So I spent a lot of time. I'd go after work. I'd go hang out in her house and um, stay with her to the wee hours because I don't think she really ever slept. I think she may have... Um, she probably, I don't know, had some sort of um, vampire thing going, but she never slept. It was really weird. But um, I would hang out at her house till like 2, 3 in the morning where I'd be so tired that by the time I got home, I would just have enough time to sleep and get up and go to work, you know. And she was brilliant about that. And one day I was in her living room and I said, you know, Sandy, I'm wasting your time and mine because I'm a drunk. I am going to drink sooner or later. I always do. And she said to me, you know what, Hilda, if you really take on steps six and seven in your life and practice it, you will no longer have the excuse of I've always been and I'm always going to be because you get to change. I've always been a train wreck. I'm always going to be a train wreck. I've always been a loser. She said, you don't get to do that anymore if you truly do step six and seven. And that night she gave me hope because I believed her. She gave me hope. And, um, you know, she was good as gold. And I was about nine months sober, and um, I got promoted. My company were moving me to Belgium. Belgium. I thought it was just a place on the news. I didn't know people really lived there, right? It's like one of those countries you can carpet border to border and have bits left over, you know. Um, so I went over to Sandy's. I said, Sandy, they're sending me to Belgium. 
She said, what's the problem, Hilda? I said, well, I'm only nine months sober. I am not supposed to have any major changes in the first year. She said, I'm really sorry your company didn't get the memo. <laughs> Pack your bags. <laughs> so I moved to Belgium, and, uh, and I was miserable. I, um, I did duvet therapy. I'm sure nobody in this area has ever done duvet therapy, but I tried duvet therapy. It's when you get home from work, you get into bed, pull up the duvet, get up the next day and hope it all changes. Um, Winnie the Pooh. Um, <laughs> it didn't work, but I didn't drink. And uh, finally, I was so miserable, I called Sandy, and I said, you know, Sandy, this is what's going on, and I don't know what to do. And she said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to blow the dust off your big book and get your happy little arse 20 minutes up the road to the Brussels group. There's a meeting there every night. And when you get there, I want you to share honestly. And I was like, whatever. Fine. So I drive up to the Brussels group. I get to this group. It's a small group. It's in Brussels. Nice group. But their um, coffee was like sludge. And they had almost no literature. So when I shared, I told them so. And... <laughs> Afterwards, they gave me the literature commitment and they took me to coffee. And uh, I learned about putting my hand out again, you know. And uh, I was offered a job in London when I was 14 months sober and I did it all different. I went over every weekend. I had a service commitment waiting for me before I got there. People in AA helped me find a flat and I did not have to do duvet therapy. And it was the first time I tried doing something different for a different result. I had heard you talk about that, but I had never actually done it. And, um, you know, I was tootling along quite nicely in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I didn't think my sobriety has really been textbook sobriety, but it has worked for me. I was about two and a half years sober. I was at a convention, and I heard a speaker say, you can do absolutely anything in Alcoholics Anonymous if you're willing to do the work and pay the price. And I thought, huh, okay. So I went back from this conference, I went into work, I gave my notice, and uh, started applying to universities. I decided to go into a helping profession, going to help people. Two and a half years, I did not know myself well enough to know that I don't like people enough to want to do that. <laughs> so, so I'm applying to universities, and uh, I, um, I got a... I got accepted to university when I was about four years sober. Um, I got my first tattoo and my first motorcycle. And uh, about four and a half years sober, I had a motorcycle accident. So I got a bigger bike and a bigger tattoo. And uh, five years sober, I started my second year at university. And nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous seemed surprised. And I thought it was because they believed in me. And I heard a speaker that had the same experience <laughs> say that she realized it's about believing in Alcoholics Anonymous because you can do absolutely anything in Alcoholics Anonymous if you're willing to do the work and pay the price. And uh, I was about six and a half years sober. Life is good. I'm at university. I've got a great bike. I'm in a relationship. Um, it just doesn't get any better than this. And as I'm leaving the house to go to a convention in the south of England, the phone rings, and it's my mom. And my mom was living in Southern California, and she had been diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And she asked if I would come home when she had these big operations that were coming up in a couple of months. And, uh, and I said I would. Now, that may not seem like a huge deal to you, 
but it was massive to me because nobody in my family ever gave me bad news. Whenever bad news happened, I used to go on a bender. So now I'm missing, and they still have the bad news. So they just stopped telling me. So my mom asked me to come out. So it was coming up in a couple of months. So I went on to this convention in the south of England, and I'm standing in line for registration. And a fellow who had known me since I got sober pulled me aside. And he said, would you share at the midnight meeting? And I said, I'm really not up for it. And he said, uh, look, Hilda, there'll be nobody there. You look like you need to share. And what I didn't realize was that me outsides were starting to match me insides. And he could see that. And uh, he said, look, Hilda, the old-timers meeting has gone on at the same time. It'll be fine. It's probably just what you need. I was like, fine, I'll do it. So I show up in the midnight meeting. There's about 250 people in the room. <laughs> but I cried for the very first time when I shared about my mom. I had never cried in Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, when you cried, I used to tap your knee. Sorry. You know, <laughs> I had no frame of reference. I had nothing, you know. So I cried when I shared about my mom. And something happened to me that night because a fellow I barely knew stood up in the back of the room and offered me a flight to Los Angeles if I couldn't afford it. The Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous touched me that night. It was the first time I realized I was part of something bigger than a meeting, that I was part of a fellowship, and I was in the middle of the bed. And uh, when the time came, I flew out to Southern California, and um, I was there when she woke up, and I was there when she went to sleep. And there's a 202 club in Pasadena right across the street from the hospital, and when she was sleeping, I would go across to a meeting, and you know, I had spent my entire sobriety asking my sponsor, how do I make amends to this woman, my mom? I'm an only child. I tore my mother's heart out. I called her collect from foreign jails, and she could do nothing. You know, my sponsor says, if you're sitting here today with us, there are 10 people digesting their dinner better, 10 people sleeping better, because you're safe in Alcoholics Anonymous with us. My mom is one of the ten. And my sponsor kept saying, you know, Hilda, when the time is right, you'll know. It's God's time, not yours. So oddly enough, you say, is it odd or is it God? Oddly enough, because of what I had been doing at university, I got to take my mom home early and nurse her at home. And as I was doing her tubes one day, my mom stopped and turned to me and said, you know, Hilda, I don't know how I'll ever repay you. My mom. <laughs> I said, you don't get it. Six and a half years I have waited so that I could be the daughter you deserved instead of the one you had. You know, and uh, I love that thing. Life is not measured by the number of breaths you take, but by the moments that take your breath away. Because that's been my sobriety, those moments. You know, my mom and I have a great relationship today. Um, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, her and I cook and we open the house up to a fellowship. And uh, we had like 20-odd people for Thanksgiving and over 20 people for Christmas. And my mom loves you. You know, my mom loves Alcoholics Anonymous. And she is a grateful member of Al-Anon. And I have to tell you, I love Al-Anon because it gave me my mom. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. And um, for my mom's 60th birthday, she wanted to go home to Ireland where she was born and raised. She hadn't been home in many years. And... Uh, I said I would, right? So I called my sponsor up, and I said, taking me mom home to Ireland. You know, it's her 60th birthday. And my sponsor said, um, just remember, this 
is your mother's trip. I said, yeah, I know. She goes, no, really. I need you to remember, this is your mother's trip. I'm like, yeah, I get it, fine. So we're in Ireland, and we're going around all the places. My mom will, you know, went to school, and where she caught the bus, and where she bought her sweets, and I just wanted to kill myself. <laughs> and I remembered it was my mother's trip. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you reminded me. It was my mother's trip. And we were on Brayhead near, um, in Bray Wicklow, where my mother was born and raised. And uh, my mom just turned to me and said, you know, Hilda, you've turned into a lovely young woman. Hi, mom. That's Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. I was, um, I was working in uh, London for a company whose head office was in New York. And uh, in August of 2001, um, I used to go to New York all the time uh, from London. And in August 2001, I was in New York, and I found out I was getting a promotion. I was going to be a god, and it was about time, <laughs> right? I knew they'd see my worth one day. So my partner, who is, um, I guess now my wife, but three months longer sober than I am, and she will tell you so, um, I called her from New York and said, pack it up, babe. We are moving to New York City. Going to be a god. She said, of course you are. Um, why don't you call me after the meeting? And I was like, shoot my balloon. So I go to the meeting. Now, <clears throat> I can't afford to be al anonymous in Alcoholics Anonymous. My first sponsor told me that would kill me. So every time I travel, I have a home group away from home, and I make sure people know when I'm in town and know when I'm going to be there next. And so I show up at my meeting in New York and um, in sitting in my seat, and this little fella came over to me, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, do you remember me? And I said, I'm sorry, I don't. And he said, uh, and I continued thinking about my new office, right? How I'm going to decorate it and what the view looks like and, you know, how deserving I am. And uh, he tapped me on the shoulder again. And I looked at him and he said, um, you know, you shared at my very first meeting and I'm a year sober tonight. And it meant the world to this kid that I was in town on his anniversary. And I realized in that moment that it wasn't about the corner office. It wasn't about being a god. It was about being of service. Being of service in Alcoholics Anonymous, being of service to my mom, being of service. Page 77 says uh, um, we need to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and our fellows. It does not say in Alcoholics Anonymous. It says God and our fellows. And I realized that that night, and everything changed. You know, I went back to um, London. I turned down the promotion, and I went back to London. And three weeks later, the towers disappeared. And I spent 36 hours in the office checking people's name off a list who wanted somebody to know they were okay. Now, I can tell you that 98% of the office went to the pub to watch it on telly. But because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was of service. You know, and... Um, <laughs> It doesn't get any better than that, you know. Um, we moved to Southern California. I was eight years sober, eight and a half years sober, and um, I thought I was doing quite well, right? <laughs> My old sponsor used to say, if you really want to know how sober you are, ask the people who work for you 
or your boss or the people at home, right? <laughs> but I thought I was doing quite well. And uh, I'm in this really small women's meeting in the suburbs, um, and uh, there's about 12 people in the meeting, and they're having a group conscience, and I have no clue what they're talking about. And the whole meeting stops and turns around and goes, what do you think, Hilda? And I realized I had the longest sobriety in the room at eight and a half years sober. And I just looked at them and said, if I'm all you've got, you're screwed. <laughs> and I got frightened. And um, so I started going to um, what is now my home group, which is the Pacific Group in Los Angeles. If you're ever there, you are more than welcome on a Wednesday night, sunset in solitaire. And uh, I can tell you with, um, I now have 23 years, 22 and a half 22 years, nine months of sobriety. Um, and I am in the bottom third in that room. I love that. You know, I love that. Um, so I started going to that meeting. Um, a friend of mine suggested that maybe I would fit in, which um, I thought was an insult at the time. I realized today she was right. Um, and you know, the weirdest thing happened. So I had gone to the World Convention in 1995 in San Diego. I was two years sober, and uh, I almost left because there was too many people, right? It was just too overwhelming. There was too many people, but I thought I'll stay for one more meeting. And this woman shared from the podium um, that it was about the price of her dignity. If the bartender had said, drink this and lose your dignity, she'd have said, make it a double and buy him one too. And I totally identified. And in fact, I quoted that woman for years after it. So now I'm in um, the Pacific Group meeting on a Wednesday night, and this woman comes up to me and says, um, Hey, Hilda, glad you're here. Every week she remembers my name. So my friend said, um, You know, you're looking for a sponsor. Why don't you ask her? And I wasn't sure, and she said, Why don't you get her CD and see if you have anything in common? Great. I get her CD. I pop it in, driving home from the meeting, and it's the Dignity Woman from San Diego. So I stalked her for a while, as you do. <laughs> but she's been my sponsor since, and I can tell you that she changed my entire sobriety because I had lost my primary purpose somewhere along the way, you know? Um, a few years back, I guess 2008, um, my partner um, had trouble with their visa, so we had to go back to Ireland. So we moved to Ireland for a year. And um, I can tell you, I did not get on well in Ireland. But I'm well-trained in Alcoholics Anonymous. I call my sponsor every day. I called her every day from Ireland. She is always up to date with me. And uh, finally, I said, look, Sharon, I don't know what to do. And she said, you know, it's time you get on an effing plane. And I hung up the phone, and my partner said, what did Sharon say? And I said, she told me to get on an effing plane. And my partner said, do you need a lift to the airport? Because we knew we'd work it out, you know. So I came back to, um, went back to Southern California. I'm 15 and a half years sober. I am jobless, penniless, sleeping on my mom's floor. Not where I wanted to be at 15 and a half years sobriety. And uh, I was having trouble getting a job, and I didn't know what to do. Through I threw myself into Alcoholics Anonymous, right into the middle of the bed. I got busy. Went to a lot of means, did a lot of service, started sponsoring a lot of girls. And... Um, I called uh, my sponsor one day, and I said, look, I really just don't know about this getting a job thing. I feel terrible. I can't give me mom any money. And Sharon said, hang on a minute. Aren't you and your mom watching certain television shows every day? I said, well, yeah. 
and aren't you having dinner a couple of nights a week together? I said, well, yeah. She said, huh, don't you think this might be another way to make amends to your mother by allowing her to be your mother? At the time, I wasn't quite sure. In hindsight, I can see that she was absolutely right. And, of course, I got a job. My partner got back into the country, and uh, we got better jobs and nice cars and our nice flat, and life took off, right? And then in um, 2011, the company I was working for was going under. So I called me mom, and I said, you know, mom, the company I'm working for is going under. I'm, I'm going to be unemployed again. And my mom went, you can come live with me. It literally took my mom 24 hours to realize I had given her bad news. She phoned me the next day and went, oh, sorry about your job, Hilda. <laughs> like, too late, you know. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, in um, March of 2012, I was up for two jobs at the same time. One was with unmanned drones for the military, and the other was with the spirit of giving. Unmanned drones spirit of giving. Now, if you've had more than a 10-minute conversation with me, you know I am an unmanned drones for the military kind of girl, right? My sponsor, who is an ex-bong wine drinking hippie, said, I think the spirit of giving would be good for you. So I was being a smart arse, and I would not recommend this. I said, why don't we leave it to God? She said, I think that is a fantastic idea. <laughs> you have to accept whoever offers you the job first. So for almost four years now, I have been working for the spirit of giving. <laughs> we have slides from the second floor to the first and barefoot Fridays. <laughs> it has been an adjustment, let's say. Um, <laughs> I was, um, I started at this company. I was there a week and, um, I thought I was super casual, right? I mean, when I got sober, I never owned a pair of jeans. I'm, my, my partner will tell you I'm a little rigid. Um, I'd like to think that's changed. I'd like to think I'm modified type A personality now, but, um, <laughs> I'm wearing jeans, a button down shirt and a blazer and I think I'm casual. And my boss walked past me at the end of the first week, or beginning of the second week. She tapped me on the shoulder and she goes, lose the blazer. I was like, <laughs> I thought this is going to be a long gig. And uh, the one thing this company does is on your year anniversary, and every two years after, you go on a giving trip. So you go to a third world country and you do what we do, which is put shoes on little kids' feet. And um, I went to Honduras. And um, I was unplugged for 10 days, which is unheard of for me. And uh, every morning I got up and I got in the van. Never quite knew where we were going. We just showed up at these schools. And um, we went to this area in Honduras where the kids are direct descendants of the Mayans. And the Honduran government doesn't recognize them. So their school has no running water. It has no electricity. And yet these are the happiest kids we'd met the entire time. And uh, we had a medic with us, and um, because some of the kids, their feet are tore up terrible, and the medic has to fix them before we can give them the new shoes. And I uh, had a little fella the medic took, and he burst into tears because he didn't think he was getting his shoes. And my heart cracked just a little bit. 
And um, as we were packing up, I saw the little fella across the valley with his new shoes in his hands, giving me a wave. <laughs> and my heart cracked just a little. Because I am not that gal. I am not that gal. You know, and um, the point is I almost missed it. I almost missed it. The truth is I am the product of strong sponsorship. You know, I take direction from a woman I don't always like to do things I rarely understand. And somewhere along the way, it seems to work. You know, and I am so grateful because this is the best job I've ever had. And I'm really good at it, you know. And my giving trip, um, I was supposed to go on my giving trip last year, and I was um, work took over. So I'm going in the next couple of months, I get to go on another giving trip. And, you know, I cannot believe that in such a short period of time I can stand here and tell you that I'm excited that I get to go again. Because I'm just not that cow, you know. You know, I'm so grateful my first sponsor was honest with me. You know, it makes me crazy when we talk to newcomers and we say, it's going to get better. You know, if you're new, it's going to get better, and then it's going to get worse. And then it's going to get better, and then it's going to get worse. Because nobody is wrapping you in cotton wool just because you stopped drinking. You know, and my first sponsor was brutally honest with me about that. And she said, you know, just remember, Hilda, Alcoholics Anonymous is not high school. It is not about being liked. It's not about being popular. It's not about getting the guy or getting the girl or getting the job or making more money or getting divorced or getting married or getting divorced and getting married. <laughs> you know, it's not about starting smoking or stopping smoking or stopping swearing or it's not about any of that. Some of that happens, but it's fluff. Alcoholics Anonymous is about one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. It's about trying to save lives one day at a time because we have something that only what we have will help them. It's unique. You know, my sponsor, <laughs> my sponsor always says, remember, we're saving lives. It sounds so hinky, but it's so true. You know, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, did not qualify for the third tradition. Did not. I really did not want to stop drinking. I just wanted to stay out of wet beds with ugly people, right? But somewhere along the way, you know, I came to a lying bedwetting whore, and somewhere along the way, you have turned me into a good friend, a loving and monogamous wife, and a true daughter to my mother. And for that, I thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.